John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, Jesus replied, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the wine that had been turned, a water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went to Jerusalem in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins on the money changers um, and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he spoke of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's good to um, get into a passage of scripture where it talks about parties and festivals and feasting and things like that. So I hope you're ready for a morning that's uh, getting us into the mood of good times and um, really confronted by who Jesus is. We've been on this journey through the Gospel of John and now we start to get some real, uh, see Jesus really in action. Uh, so how about I pray and then we'll dig a bit deeper. Dear Father God, we just thank you that we can come here this morning. We thank you that we can gather as your children we thank you that when we do gather, you say that you would speak to us. And Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus and, and revealing yourself to us through him. But we pray now that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, open our hearts, Lord, to understand who he is and what he's come to do so that we can be a part of it. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. One of the favourite things I love to do is be involved in weddings. Uh, when you see people come up the front and it's all exciting, everybody's dressed up, there's just that element of you know, anxiousness because there's so much happening when two people come together. But there's that exciting part where they come together, the man and woman, they're not husband and wife yet, but they come and make promises and vows to each other and the promises they make are usually pretty serious. They say, you know... Um, I take you to be my husband or wife, to never leave you or forsake you, for better, for worse. It's a big promise, isn't it? For better, for, or it could be better if I leave. But no, I'm promising better. For richer, for poorer, for sickness and in health. They're big promises. And I think everybody in, in that moment goes, gee, no, they're big promises. I hope that they can fulfill those promises to each other. And those couple making the promises to each other, hopefully they've had a long enough time together to be able to trust. How can I know that he or she is going to fulfill that promise? How do I know that they're going to be there in sickness and in health, richer or poorer? How do I know I can trust them is the basic question. Now hopefully they've had enough time together that they realise, hey, this is a big enough leap. It is a test of I'm putting my trust in you. I'm making myself vulnerable to you and I'm going to, to do that for, for the better life. But how can we know? Only time will tell. Now, it's those sort of promises and those sort of that uh, change in life and trust and being vulnerable to somebody else is very similar to what it means to become a Christian. To say to God that through Jesus Christ, I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to hand my life over to you. And when I trust in you, I'm becoming vulnerable because I'm no longer in control anymore. I'm at your hands. I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to believe in you. I'm going to take your promises. And at that time, it does. Can I trust in you? And there'll be lots of times at questions, can we trust in Jesus to fulfill that, to hand our life over to him? Because it's a big call. When we hand our life over to him, we hand our, our money over to him, we hand our time over to him, we hand our priorities over to him i'm living for him now for his glory not me and my glory it's a big change in life when you put your trust in jesus and call yourself a christian can you trust jesus through that journey of life well john uh, the apostle john is writing his scripture and he's telling us stories about jesus to show us that you can trust jesus that you can trust him with all things, with your life, with your money, with your time, with your priorities. You can trust him and he's worth counting on because he'll come through with you. And he shows us through these two stories, uh, two events that come through. Uh, the first one, a wedding. The second, a, a feast at the Passover uh, at the temple there. Uh, and they're two good times. So I hope you're ready for, uh, yeah, just getting to know Jesus through a party, but also a festival at the temple. The first one we see is the wedding, where they come into a wedding. We've just told there's a wedding on. Jesus' uh, mother's there, Mary, and Jesus and his disciples are there. Weddings are this thing where it's a big uh, community event. Everybody comes together. And I've been told these weddings in the Middle East, it's not about uh, if you want an impressive wedding... Say maybe for us, if we want a big impressive wedding, it's about the size of your wedding, how many guests that you come to have at your wedding. You know, that, that's impressive, right? But for the Middle East, an impressive wedding is more about how long it goes for. So their weddings can go for over a day, two days, three days or more. 
So weddings are a big deal. You want to invite everybody. Big party, big event for the whole community. And it can go on for days and days. Now, at this wedding, though, there's a problem. There is a problem. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. They have no more wine. Now, I'm not sure how you understand these verses. Maybe this is one of the most familiar passages in the Bible, is this story about Jesus turning water into wine. And sometimes we can get a bit over-familiar. But I think if we're reading it for the first time, you've got to start to wonder. This is Mary, the mother of Jesus. You know, we're familiar with her in the Christmas story. And, you know, often walks around with a halo around her head. I wonder what is going on here. Because, follow me with this for a little while, the, um, there's this thing, if, if you're at a party and somebody's, you know, you've got drinks happening, there's a bar there or an esky there, who's the first person to realise you've run out of alcohol? It's the person that, you know, is visiting the esky a fair bit, right? It's the, they're the ones that are sitting at the bar. We've run out. Who's noticed at first? Mary. Not even the, the, the best man, uh, the... Um, the groom knows. He supplied the drinks. Not even the master of ceremony knows this, but Mary's onto it. We've run out of wine. At your party, who is the first person to go, this is a national crisis. We've got to fix the problem or else the party cannot continue. Mary's onto it. She's onto it. She's not going to let it be missed. And who's the person at your party who says, I can fix it. I know where the bottle shop's open, whatever time of day or night. I know where to get it. Did you ever wonder how Mary knew that Jesus could turn water into wine? She knew where the good wine was coming from. She went straight to Jesus. And did you notice how Jesus didn't go, Mary, how did you know that I could turn water into wine? I think he's like saying to the disciples, well, here she goes again. I've done this before and she knows it. She knows where the good wine is. Here we go. And it's kind of like, what do we make of Mary? There's this national crisis and she knows how to fix it and then, Maybe Mary's not the halo sort of girl that we think she is. But she's panicked. Can I just say that when I did my research, no other commentaries agreed with what I interpreted, the way I interpreted that. They all say that maybe she's just a really nice woman and she doesn't want to be embarrassed for her hosts, so she's trying to fix the problem before it does become a problem for them. They're probably more right with that. But there's an interesting dynamic going on here between Mary and Jesus, isn't there? Mary's panicked. Got no more drink. <laughs> Jesus, how does he reply? Jesus replies, woman, what's this? Why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. I'm not sure what answer you're expecting Jesus to come back with. But I bet, especially for you men, if you tried an answer like that, when somebody, something's asked of you, to your mother or to your wife. Woman, what's this got to do with me? Kim and I have talked about memorising scripture at home. And um, <laughs> I can suggest it's not a verse you want to go around the house quoting. It's a nice, easy verse. Woman, what's this got to do with me? It won't end up well. But... Unless you can be like Jesus and say something like this, my hour has not yet come. So unless you've got a pretty impressive hour that's going to do the dishes and clean up the kids and that hour is really good, I don't think it's going to work. But Jesus is turning this opportunity into a, a teaching opportunity. 
things had gone a bit, bit into chaos, a little bit in, out of control at the wedding. So he's come back and said, hey, he's pushed back on his mum a little bit. My hour has not yet come. And what does he mean, my hour has not yet come? Well, throughout John, we'll find a little bit out a little bit more about that. But he talks about his hour as being the time of his, his glory to be revealed. So he's, he's God, right? And he's come in human form and people see him as human. But his glory as God will be revealed. And his mission is going to be revealed. His mission uh, to why has he come into this earth? But it's going to be revealed at the right time. And he's saying... This is not the right hour. This is not, it's not it. So he pushes back. Now again, I don't think Mary's gone, we're at a wedding, Jesus. I don't think it's time for a theological lesson. So she tells the servants, just get the wine. Just do what he says. It'll work out all right. He's got the good wine. You know, he'll just do what he says. So she's thinking, just keep the party going. Keep the party going. But Jesus does turn this into a teaching moment. And so he tells the servants, nearby there's six stone water jars, the sorted water jars that they use for ceremonial cleaning. That's when, um, like if we go to have dinner, often we'll wash our hands for hygiene reasons. But the Jews used to wash their hands before they go into a feast or a meal like this for ceremonial reasons, to symbolically to say that not just my hands are clean, but I'm clean. I'm a clean person. I'm, I'm worthy to be here. So that's what the jars were used for, for religious use. They used, and, and they were used specifically for that. You couldn't use one of these ceremonial jars for doing the laundry in and things like that. These were just used for ceremonial purposes. But for Jesus, he's going to use them for another reason. He's got the ceremonial jars. They're j big jars. They're about what works out to be 100 litres each. And there's six of them, 600 litres. And then Jesus tells the servants to fill the water jars and they fill it to the brim. The reason why we're given all these details is to show, look, there's no tricks going on here. It's not fill the water 80% and we're going to add a wine concentrate the next 20% and just make this happen. They're filling it to the brim with water. You know, nothing's going to, else is going to come in and do some sort of fancy trick in this. So they fill it with water and Jesus says, hey, take some and take it to the master of the ceremony. Give him a taste of it. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the servants, right? You're a servant at this grand wedding. And you've run out of wine already. You think, man, we're going to be in trouble. We've just ran out of wine here. This guy has come along and says, fill, fill your jars up with water. Are we allowed to do that? They're ceremonial jars. He goes, hey, take some to the master of ceremony. He's going, hey... I know we're only so far into the wedding, but we're, we're trying to pass off water as wine to the master of sin. If he goes, hey, what are you serving me? This dodgy water, you're passing it off as wine. We're going to be in big trouble. Like, you can imagine, they'd be panicking, right? What is going to happen here? But they follow Jesus' directions. They give him uh, a cup of this stuff, and they're trusting Jesus in that. And then we go on in verse 9. The master of ceremony, he's impressed. He tastes some. This is good. It's the good wine. He even goes to the, to the grooms, like the groom who supplied all the wine, and says, mate, you've got the good stuff. Most people serve the good stuff first. People get a bit tipsy. They don't really care about is it good or bad. So say the cheap stuff to later. You've got the good stuff now. This late in the wedding, 
This is good. He's giving the groom all the, all the glory for this. You'd imagine the servants then taking a sigh of relief. I like, can't believe just what happened. Filled up with water, giving it to this guy. It's now the best wine ever. They're witnesses to this. So with all this action, there's a teaching moment going on. Jesus has used this situation to, to go, hey, there's a lesson here to be learned. My hour has not yet come, but let me show you something. And what is that lesson? Because a couple of simple lessons have come out. The first one is Jesus is both man and God. And we can see that through the reaction of the disciples. They've seen this um, you know, probably with Jesus when Mary come along and going, oh, this is a bit of a dilemma. You're going to turn water into wine? No one can do that. And then they see it happen. When they see it, they say they see his glory. Like, this is not a man. It's not a man that's just giving these people instructions. Only somebody like God, somebody divine, could do that. So they see it and go, this is not just the man sitting with us, having a good laugh and a chat at the wedding, but he's also God that can do miracles like that. The second lesson is that Jesus is introducing people to a new life. There's this idea of the new wine being of new life and a new start and a new place. We get this from the book of Joel. Let me give you a bit of context of the Old Testament book of Joel before we look at a couple of verses. Because Joel's written in a time, it's about 800 years before Jesus, and he's a prophet. Israel is speaking to Israel. Israel are going off the track. They've started to have a bit of tension where things aren't going right for them as a nation. They're looking at other nations and going, maybe if we, if we hook up with them, if we follow their gods, we'll be better off. We'll be better off, more prosperous. We'll have a better future if we follow the other gods and the other nations. Joel comes in and he goes, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You've got to trust in Yahweh, the God of, of Scripture, the God of creation. And he comes up with a couple of verses. Uh, here's just a couple from chapter 2. Chapter 2, 19. He's talking about if you follow this God, this God of the Bible, the Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Enough to satisfy you fully. A few verses later in verse 24, he says the threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And we get this impression that, that wine, and I think for many of us experience wine, it symbolises good times, a time of joy, a time of celebration. You crack open a wine and you just go, how good is life or how good is God that we do that? I don't think it's a mistake that even Jesus uses wine for the Lord's Supper to remember him and the new life we have in him. It's time of God's blessing. To have abundance of, of this new wine is truly a blessing. It's, it's a symbol, it symbolises good things. Now, for some of us, too, also recognise when we think of wine and alcohol, it also brings up bad things, uh, you know, drunkenness and maybe even abuse through that drunkenness. The Bible never talks about excessive drinking of wine as a good thing, okay? It always shows people get drunk in the Bible, but it always works out bad. People never get smarter by drinking, they never get better morals by drinking. And if you've been to a karaoke bar, they never get better singers by drinking either. So like it says, it doesn't happen. But the idea of wine and an abundance of wine is a sign of good times, a sign of rejoicing. A wine is all right when it's measured out that way. 
And now through this, he's seeing God's promises right from back, 800 years before in Joel, saying there will be a time of good times, of blessing and abundance, new wine, the vats will overflow. And Jesus has come along and he's saying, this is the time. You want wine? I'll give you good wine, the best wine that overflows in abundance. I find it interesting that when we think of Jesus, you know, God come to earth, that if he wants to fix up the world, what should he be doing? His first miracle probably should be healing people, raising the dead, helping the poor. But Jesus' first public miracle is making more wine so the party can keep going. It's like Jesus here saying, no, this is a whole new season. I'm introducing a new time in history that's showing you you can trust me. If you want life to the full, here I am. You can trust me in this. So there is this big teaching. This is a new time in history, world history. That Jesus has come. Everything's anticipated this, this time when God's going to pour out his blessing. Now Jesus is here. He's arrived. I was talking about this with, to someone during the week and they asked the question, well, actually it's hard for us to imagine why do we need this new life? Why are we so hungry and desiring of this, this new life of abundance? Because we're actually, we're doing pretty good. And they're right. You know, we live in a country here in Australia at this time, we're ranked number two by the United Nations for the most livable country in the world. And, you know, we've got great places to go, great climate, great healthcare system, uh, great social security system. You know, it's kind of like no one's left behind here in this country. It's a great country. Why would we ever desire heaven or live for heaven when life is so abundant and prosperous here and now? But on the flip side of that, when you look at Australia, how we're going as a nation, did you know we rank among the highest countries of users of medication? Antidepressant medication, uh, illegal drugs, particularly ice, and alcohol abuse. That's where we are as a nation. Why is that? I mean, I can only speculate, but it's almost like these things don't satisfy us. We want more, more in abundance. We want more joy. We want more celebration. We want more of all those things. So whether it comes through a pill or a drink, we pursue those things. But Jesus has come to say, no, if you, wanna, if you follow me, I have the answer. I have these things. I don't think it's any surprise then if Jesus casts the vision when we look to heaven, the picture we have of heaven in the book of Revelation right at the end is all God's people sitting around a wedding banquet with God himself. It's a time of festival and feasting and new wine and rejoicing with God himself. But it's there. That's what's going to fulfill us. And Jesus is going, look, I've come. Through me, you can get there. That's what the message is behind all this. So at this wedding, everybody's had a good, a good sign at the wedding. The hour has not come. He hasn't revealed his glory fully. He hasn't revealed his mission fully. And we're left hanging a little bit. What does he mean, the hour? When is this hour going to come? And then we follow Jesus a bit more and we end up going to the temple in Jerusalem. To the, uh, it's the Passover festival, which is another feast. Um, yeah, sorry, catch up where I am. 
the, uh, it's another feast, and at this feast, uh, all the Jews come together from all around nations, really. It's an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem, particularly uh, everybody's in- required to do it or encouraged to do it once in your lifetime, but particularly the men, if you're the leader of a household, you do it annually. You come to Jerusalem to remember this Passover feast, which remembers God's grace onto his people Israel. So when Israel were in slavery in Egypt, yeah, hundreds of years before, God single-handedly saved them and brought them out of Egypt and brought them into the Promised Land. And the Passover is to remember how that all happened. So it's a good feast. You go to Jerusalem, you drink the new wine, you have the roasted lamb, you make your kebabs. There's lots of instructions on how to have this Passover feast. And it's a big deal. In Jerusalem, they said uh, around that time, they think there's sort of around, possibly, they don't know exactly, but around three or 400,000 people live in the city of Jerusalem. At the Passover time, that happens once a year, people travel days to come into Jerusalem and the, the numbers, they have about a million, they estimate, a million visitors just in that time. And it's a time not only of celebration, but it's a time of reconnecting with God. So the people would come, uh, and you've probably heard us talk about before the, what they do at the temple where they bring their, their sacrifices. So if a farmer would bring his, his lamb to the, uh, to the temple and go through that sacrificial process. But if you're a local in Jerusalem, you'd realise, hey, this is a great business opportunity, isn't it? Here you are, you've been doing it tough all year. All of a sudden, a million visitors rock into town. How can I make a quick buck out of this? Not just for the locals setting up their food stalls, but even the priests at the temple. Hey, this is a a good time for us. We can make a few extra bucks here from all these people. They come in, they have to come to the temple. They have to make their sacrifices. So what was going on there? And you'll see in these verses how Jesus walked in inside the temple walls. He's in the courtyard and he sees all this buying and selling of animals and the changing of money. What's going on there is you'd, you'd bring your lamb in and it would have to be your first and your best lamb, have to be one without defect, uh, because you've got to give God a good sacrifice. And they would have somebody there to, to judge if your lamb is up to scratch or not. And they would often say, look, no, that's not going to cut it for God. You need something better than that. So even though you've dragged this lamb for a few days into the temple, you've got this lamb you can't do anything with. Oh, look, we'll give you 20 bucks for it. Oh, whatever. I give them my 20 buck lamb and I can buy one of their lambs. Uh, to, to, they're good lambs, which are going to be a good sacrifice. So you go up and you see their lambs for sale, but then you realise we're in the temple now. The temple don't use Roman currency because we're a Roman nation. We don't use Roman currency. They want to be special. They've got their own temple currency. So before you can buy your lamb with your Roman currency, you've got to change currencies. And they rip you off big time. So if your lamb costs 100 bucks, you've got to give them 100 Roman dollars to get your 100 temple dollars to buy your lamb. And it's, it's recorded, whether it's true or not, but it's recorded that some people who did this got back in the queue to buy their lamb from the temple. By the time they got to the front of the queue to buy, their, buy the lamb, they've got their own lamb back. Because what the priests were doing is buying your lamb for 20 bucks, selling it again back to the people. It's a scam, big scam, all about making money. Jesus walks in, finds all this going on, and Jesus is like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding? This is not right. It's not right. Jesus walks in 
into the temple courts. He sees all this going on. And you've got to remember who Jesus is at this point. He's like, you've seen this TV show, The Undercover Boss. He's like the undercover boss has just walked into the workplace, right? Jesus, if we've been following the story all through John, we know Jesus is the Word who was God, with God, all things created through him. He's the light. He's God shining into the world so people can see God clearly. He's the Lamb of God, the Son of God. Yeah, he's, he's the Messiah. He's the King of Israel. All these names have been given to Jesus. And that's who he is. This is God come into his temple. What are you expecting him to do? What are you expecting him to do? He goes crazy at them. He makes a whip of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. You, know, you imagine this fit of rage to those who sold doves. He says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. See, it's not that the temple shouldn't have had money. That's the, it's all about making a sacrifice and giving your gifts. But it's not about corruption. It's not about a marketplace. It's not a place of, this is a place where you come to see God's glory. And they're doing anything but. People are coming in and just feeling ripped off. They're getting taken for a ride. See, God gave the temple as a good thing for the people to see his glory. But then God doesn't want to be a part of it. He can see their corruption and he's backing right off. So I want no part of this. I find it interesting that we're hitting this passage in this week where in the news this week has been all about the corruption of the church. Now, if you've had any sort of lunchroom discussion or read any sort of media, uh, the story about Cardinal Pell being found guilty of child sexual abuse, uh, and I know it's subject to appeal, but it's got everybody talking about the corruption in the church. And I know this is focused on the Catholic Church, but most people just think the church, they're all bad. We can't trust them. It, that's what's happening here at the temple, isn't it? The temple's going, the temple's here to, to shine God's glory, but yet it's getting in the road of people drawing near to God's glory. And the church today, through their history of corruption, the church is that as a general term, is often getting in the road of people seeing Jesus, seeing his glory. But even the world can see the church is not even living by God's standards, let alone the standards of the world. Like, they can see it. And what does the church do? It's got a history of denial, of hiding stuff, pretending it doesn't exist, pretending that we're untouchable. I say we because this is how people perceive the church, that we're untouchable. You can't accuse me of that. You know, we're, we're above all that. We've got a history of that. And if churches and church leaders, us included, if we try and think that we can pull a wool over the public's eyes, you might get away with it. But with God, you're not going to get away with it. God sees. He knows what's going on. God will judge. He'll get angry. Angry at his house. Angry at his people if they're doing that sort of corruption. So when we see the Jews, it's no surprise then, if this is what the church is doing today, it's no surprise the Jews in that day are going to go on the defensive. They're going to start attacking Jesus. They're going to say, who the heck are you? Who are you? What authority do you have to tell us what to do? It goes on. They put, it, put the word on him that what are you doing to, 
to push us around? Who are you to say all this stuff? You know, and we start to ask the question, is this the hour, Jesus at the temple, where God's glory should be seen? Is this the hour where Jesus is going to reveal his glory, to reveal his mission, to clean up the temple? Will God's glory show at this point? But Jesus responded to them. Sorry. Uh, Jesus uh, responded to them, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. Now you can imagine them, they're standing in the temple courts. The temple has gone through a long history from Solomon being his big grand days to being destroyed. Now King Herod's come and he wants to rebuild the temple. They've been working on the temple for 46 years. It's still not finished, but 46 years. They're, you know, they're looking around, they go, this is amazing. And Jesus turns around and says, destroy it and I'll rebuild it in three days. They're starting to think, that's a bit of a joke, right? Jesus is having a joke. Because nobody can do that. Because it's, it's taken us 46 years. Nobody could do it in three days. Is it a joke? And I wonder, the Jews are laughing it off. We can't take this guy seriously. But even the disciples are starting to wonder what's going on. I mean, can you imagine? We bought this building almost four years ago. Uh, it took us about two years to get this auditorium finished. James and Richard and his team said, look, this is going to take years for us to finish this project. Two years to get into here, another almost two years to do the kids' rooms, offices, outside all the playground area, which is so close right now. Uh, another two, it's nearly four years to do this. Can you imagine if we had that meeting at the start and James and his team just goes, hey, look, uh, this is going to take years for us to finish. And I said, look, actually... So I've seen this on TV, right, in those home Rano shows. They say, you've got three days. It's like, you know, do it. I can imagine that wouldn't go down too well either. They go, you're kidding. It can't be done. That's the sort of thing. They're saying, it took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to rebuild it in three days? That the Jews are starting to laugh at him? Yeah, right. The disciples, they're getting a bit nervous, and I'll show you why in a moment, but I can imagine them saying to each other, hey, did you hear what Jesus just said? That's ridiculous. You know, he's a carpenter, right? But three days, he's not that good a carpenter. But he turned water into wine. Yeah, but this is not turning water into wine. This is a big building, three days. That they're starting to... Do they believe him at this point? Or do they start to have their doubts and question and take a step back? The reason I say that is because in the very next verse, verse 21, we're told... But the temple Jesus had spoken about was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, go to the end of the story, see Jesus dead on the cross, buried in a tomb, but then raised from the dead. After, they, um, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed. They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. At the time, I think there's a bit of doubt going on there. But it's not till they get to the end of the story, they realise, hey, he does answer his promises. He's right. See, when we're talking about the hour when Jesus will be glorified, was it turning water into wine? 
Oh, no, that was just a little thing on the side. A new season, new season of prosperity and blessing. Uh, was it at the temple saying, no, no, actually, this is not the temple. Actually, there's another temple going on here when you can see God's glory. Where is that glory? Oh, when the hour comes, the hour comes when we see God's glory, when Jesus is lifted up on a cross. When Jesus is dying on a cross, is when he's at his most glorious and then he gets put in a tomb and then he gets raised from the dead, that's when his mission is revealed, that he is the Lamb of God, that he did come and sacrifice himself for the world, that he did come to give life, life in abundance. At his moment of glory through the cross, it's through the cross is where you see the greatest act of love of anybody, let alone God sacrificing himself for us, a bunch of sinners. It's in the cross where we see God's mission rolled out. That now the invitation is there that we can come to, to meet God. We can draw near to him to find that life to the full, life in abundance. Through the cross, we can see it. The disciples saw it. They go, now I get it. Now I can believe. Now I can be sure. Now I can be sure. Because sometimes it's hard to be sure about Jesus and his promises. It's hard to be sure that Jesus is the one that's going to give us this life to the full, life in abundance, the new wine. So I know um, there's a lot of things going on at the moment in a lot of people's lives that ask questions. Can you trust Jesus? That through life circumstances, it might not just be an argument with a friend, it's our life circumstances, whether money's tough, relationships are tough, works are tough, there's lots of things that are tough in life that are going to put pressure on you and go, oh, you know that Jesus guy you say you follow, you say you believe? Are you sure you can trust in him? Are you sure you can do it? Because it's easy to, to be like the servants going with the water going, gee, you know, we're putting a lot on the line. We could get in a lot of trouble for just following Jesus. Be like the disciples. At the, at the temple going, are we going to take a step back from Jesus at this point? Because it seems unbelievable what he's saying. But it's through his hour, through the cross, we can say, we can be sure. Because Jesus is still alive. He didn't just die like a normal human. He's still alive. and He's reigning by the Father's side to this day. He's still alive. We can be sure. John wants us to realise that no matter what's going on, this is the Apostle John writing the book, he's going, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what circumstances, we're always going to go through hard seasons, hard things we have to wrestle with. That doesn't change the fact that Jesus is alive in his hour of glory. That's where we know it's for sure. That his testimony is trustworthy. He said it. He did it. It's trustworthy. We also know that he is able. Able to rise from the dead. Water to wine. Yeah, that's a pretty easy one compared to being raised from the dead. We can trust him with our lives, with our money, our time, our priorities. We can live for the day. We'll be in that celebration, that wedding banquet with him in heaven. And we can be sure of that when we trust in him. Let me pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this amazing story of just random things going on in life, but Jesus using those random moments as a teaching lesson, even for us 2,000 years later. Lord, we're going to confess to you 
that like the characters in the story, that we often have questions about can we believe, can we trust, and how much we can trust in handing my life over to Jesus. Well, thank you that we get a clear picture of the cross and how much you love us, but also we get a clear picture of the resurrected Jesus, that he's not just some ordinary man in history, but he's truly God and truly has defeated death. And we have our hope and assurance in that. Help us to believe, Lord. Help us to believe when uh, we have questions. Help us encourage each other and build us up as a church, Lord, to go on that journey with you so that we'll all be there on that last day in heaven together. Amen.